0: Amen. Do you ever feel like living as a Christian is a hopeless option? Keeping on going for Jesus when my friends don't listen. Keeping on going for Jesus when my family think I've lost it for following him. Keeping on going for Jesus when people around me don't want to hear what it looks like to live for him. Keeping on going for Jesus in a culture that increasingly doesn't want to hold up Christian ethics. Keeping on going for Jesus at work, where it feels like the hardest thing to do, I've got no hope. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this afternoon, but you see the lives of Christians, and you see the way they live differently, and you ask that question, what is it that keeps them going? What hope do they have? This letter is written to remind people of the hope of following Jesus, and particularly, later on in the letter, when it feels tough, when it's not going well for us. As we open a letter like this, it's pretty basic to ask a few questions to understand its context, like who wrote it. First one, we see the Apostle Peter is the author. And so it's no surprise that the apostle Peter, throughout the letter, speaks of the encounters he has with Jesus, the suffering that he has through the book of Acts. Peter's sermons are recorded in the book of Acts, and some of that language shapes the way he writes on Peter. And the persecution that Peter faced, and continues to face as he writes, is evident in what he says to Peter people also facing persecution. It's probably written about around 64 AD, which is less than 40 years after Jesus died. And it's written, as you'll see, to Christians, people who claim to be Christians in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So who are these people? Um, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and addressed the people speaking in random languages, these are some of the places mentioned. Now, a specific missionary journey hasn't been talked about or written about in the rest of the New Testament to these places that we're reading this letter' written to. So piecing together the pieces, it's likely that these people that are hearing this letter, Peter might not have met firsthand. They might have been recipients of the message from that day um, at Pentecost. But it's important to say they'd have been hearers of the message through maybe first to second hand witnesses of Jesus and his ministry. They were kind of touching distance of Jesus, his power and his glory. So in light of that, it seems pretty remarkable that this letter, and Peter feels the need to write this letter, to Christians who are struggling to keep going, as close as they were to Jesus and his ministry, they're still struggling. Even though they'd probably have heard of Jesus through an eyewitness, the the ministry of Jesus was probably in their lifetime. Even though they might have been witnesses to all of that, they still struggle. But it's helpful to remember that as we read this letter, because the struggles that the Christians were facing in what would have been modern day Turkey something of what we can understand of today they'd have been um, not liked by the people around them, they'd have been in a place where Christian values wouldn't have been held up it would have been odd to follow Jesus it's the same now isn't it it's odd to follow Jesus people won't like us for following Jesus People won't like what we stand for. Whether it's people openly rejecting us or people rejecting our ethics. People won't like it. We could be left asking the question, what hope do we have as Christians? So Peter says at the beginning and the end of the letter, he keys into this theme of identity. You have a living hope in a hopeless world because of who you are. The concept of identity is a really simple one, isn't it? You see it in children's toys. There's the policeman, the taxi driver. The identity is based on what they're like, what they do. I don't know if you've played the card game Happy Families. It's genius, isn't it? It is. Whoever came up with their names, Mr. Bun, the baker's son. Sorry, Master Bun, the baker's son. What about Miss Jumbo, the pilot's daughter? Funny, isn't it? I've, um, I've caught a few episodes recently of the programme Biggleton on CBeebies. And it's just a weird programme. It's like a children's sitcom. Basically, these children, like four or five years old, um, they're in this kind of sitcom where everything's made of cardboard and their identity is the key to what goes on. Now, because they're four year old, or five years old, whatever, they can't really have a proper sitcom because there's, like a, there's, a, so there's an, uh, a lorry driver and he's in this lorry that's kind of made up, up of cardboard. And so he kind of walks along in this random contraption because obviously he's five and he can't drive. But it is genius in how they introduce the characters. Um, they've all got their kind of specific roles in Biggleton. And they've got this song that introduces them. The one that always makes me laugh is Archie. Um, Archie is the gardener. And his little song goes like this. Archie the gardener has green fingers. He cares for all the plants in town. He feeds and waters and helps them grow and sings if they look down. Archie the gardener has green fingers. And it's kind of similar for each of the characters. And you notice what the introduction is all about. It's, this is who they are because this is what they do. And that's just so common, isn't it, in our world? Your identity is based on what you do for yourself. I wonder how commonly you introduce yourself by what you do. Or even try to shape the conversation around to what you do so that you can talk about it. I'm a teacher. I'm a businessman. I'm a sports person. I'm an architect, a plumber, a translator, a charity worker, a mechanic. Now, part of that is, because that's kind of common protocol in our culture, isn't it? That's what we do. But part of it is deep down. We're desperate to shape our identity and be noticed for what we do. So Peter, writing to the followers of Jesus scattered around, he addresses them in terms, well, to remind them of just exactly who they are. Who are they? Who are we? God's elect. That's how he addresses them. The primary identity of the follower of Jesus is elect, chosen. And see, how the book starts and ends is really careful in its language. The end of chapter 5 describes them as those who together are chosen in Christ the beginning of chapter 1, repeats God's elect, chosen. See, he could address these people as you who are sticking it out, being really faithful to Jesus. He could address them as those who are clinging to the truth of the gospel, even when it's really hard. He could say, you who are doing really well, despite the circumstances. But the fundamental identity of the Christian is one that is not self-defined. It is one that is not earned. The fundamental identity of the Christian, and this is what Peter wants to say so clearly, is chosen, rescued, transformed. And it's fundamental as well because it means that the journey of the Christian in exile is not accidental. It's precisely because the Christian is chosen that they have hope in an otherwise hopeless world. Peter writes whilst experiencing something of the same as his recipients. The ruler of the, is the Emperor Nero and in a, um, a Roman culture they were facing intense persecution. Peter's almost certainly writing from Rome and um, just have a look at 5 verse 13 there at the end. He describes it as Babylon. He uses this title to stress that what's going on at the time is people are rejecting God. Rejecting living as a Christian and rejecting what it means to live for Jesus. And it's what he, what he encourages his re- readers to find hope in, being a follower of Jesus. That's how he describes himself, after all, Peter, an apostle of Christ, his fundamental identity. And so that's what he wants to encourage his readers, to find their identity in too. Now, as Peter writes, he's writing to what would have predominantly been a Gentile audience. So, using terms like chosen would have been pretty hard for his readers to read. After all, it's not many years ago that that's precisely what they weren't, isn't it? The Jews were the chosen ones. The Gentile, chosen. It's easy for Peter to say he was chosen, is what probably the recipients would have said, because... Jesus was um, Peter was handpicked by Jesus to come and follow him, but Peter deliberately uses the term "chosen people," that would have had so much historical meaning in the Israelites as they followed God, but it's clear that Peter uses it on purpose. He had seen firsthand that now Gentiles too had that same identity. We saw it a couple of weeks ago in Acts ten. And how Peter, off the back of it, said, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. As he goes to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, he said, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to God. Peter wants to make it so clear that the identity of anyone who trusts in Jesus is chosen. If we truly follow Jesus, we share in the same glorious privilege as those chosen to follow God through the Old Testament. If we truly follow Jesus, we share in the same glorious privilege as Peter, who is hand-picked by Jesus to follow him. If we truly follow Jesus, we share in the same glorious privilege as those scattered around modern-day Turkey who were recipients of this letter. But that also means that glorious privilege comes with difficulties and that's why Peter writes this to his recipients and to us. It might be, um, as you listen, you're thinking, actually I'm not sure my primary, fundamental identity is a follower of Jesus. I'm just thinking this through. If that's you, you're very welcome. And we'd love to continue to help you think through what this means. But as you can see from the letter, it says that a living hope comes from building your life upon Jesus, having that as your fundamental identity. That's what Peter says, and that's what we believe at Town Church. And I'd encourage you, if you've not made that conscious decision to follow Jesus, do have a look at who he is and what he says. It might be that you're listening to this letter's introduction and thinking, well, I've made the decision to follow Jesus, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it's my primary fundamental identity. Well, that's exactly the point. Peter writes to remind you, if you trust in Jesus, because of what God has done, this is your primary identity right now. But why is it so tough for us to remember this? because we're God's elect, but we are two scattered exiles. For now, we are scattered exiles. What's the chief reason that we're exiles in a place not our own? Well, because the ultimate allegiance of our land is away from Christ. Just as we saw for the people um, in Babylon, where Daniel we looked at earlier last year, spent time among um, people who actively were disobedient to God. As exiles, they were pressured to not have God as their ultimate allegiance. Just as we see here is true of the people scattered among modern-day Turkey. Just as it was true of the writer of the letter, Peter, as he signs off from what he calls Babylon, which is most likely Rome. So if our fundamental identity is chosen, our chief allegiance must be to Jesus then we must be exiles. The hope we have as chosen strangers, elect exiles, is that we will face difficult times now. That is no accident. But actually, that's the only way we can rightly understand the suffering that we might face now. Just think about the way... um, people feed their main identity in this world. We try to self-define our identity, don't we? Archie the gardener, he is what he does. The sportsman, the businessman, the stay-at-home mum. We say that our identity is based on what we do and how well we do it. Therefore, we try to say our identity defines our circumstances. See, it's the biggest compliment, isn't it, to say to someone you deserve it because you've done that well. You put all that work in. Or it's the biggest compliment to say of someone, don't worry about them, They'll, they'll be great in that situation because they know how to cope. But the alternative, the flip side of that is, we say our circumstances are defined by chance. For example, the lottery winner. The cancer victim. We say we're victims of our circumstances. The, the comment is always, you don't deserve that. That shouldn't be you. But the reality is, when the world says we can shape our identity, there will always be circumstances that destroy that hope. Whether it be freak incidents like injury in sport or redundancies at work, whether it be relationship breakdown. Even the best self-defined identities in this world fall flat and fall apart. And when the world says we're victims of circumstances, you end up living a life of lottery that just drives bitterness and completely robs us of hope. We end up saying things like, well, the chances are probably going to get cancer at some point. The chances are but as followers of Jesus we're neither creating our circumstances or victims of our circumstances. We have a real hope because our identity is as God's elect. As he chooses us to be his and to be his exiles and all that comes with that. And sometimes, that is really difficult to work through. Circumstances can be really tough. It can be living with the pain of life in broken Babylon. It can be living with the brutality of persecution. But do you know what? Peter, our author, he knows all about that. And he writes specifically to exiles because he knows it's hard. That's the purpose of the book, that in and throughout circumstances like that, we might know what it is to be God's people. How will we maintain that perspective? How can we maintain a living hope in a hopeless world? Peter wants to say, we'll keep going. We'll have a sure hope when we remember who we are. It's Interesting, and that narrative, remember who you are and you'll keep going. It's something the world loves, isn't it? There's something about it. You see it in literature. Um, Two popular stories, The Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. Frodo and Harry are countless times told to remember who they are, where they're from, what they've come to do. In both stories, it's fate that's made the ring fall into the hands of the hobbits, It's fate that meant Harry was the one that couldn't be killed by Lord Voldemort. And so fate drives those two characters on because of where they've come from. These two characters countless times are encouraged to remember where they've come from in order to press on and continue in hope. In both these stories, though, it's the author's intent, it's fate, it's chance, that means that those two characters keep going. But here Peter says, "Remember who you are. You're not a product of fate or chance, but God's choosing. It's not that the Christian has a fairy tale hope, but a living hope. And it's not just because of who we are, but because of whose we are. We're God's elect, we are exiles scattered, so we'll maintain a living hope in a hopeless world when we remember whose we are. We belong to the father. When you go to see the doctor, they usually give you a diagnosis and a prognosis. The Greek word for for, um, prognosis is in verse 2 it's foreknowledge. Now, diagnosis is broken up of dia and gnosis. Dia means apart, and gnosis means to know or recognize. So, the diagnosis is the doctor's delivery. Of how the doctor has taken apart the right information from all that they get. A bit like in a police lineup of potential criminals, the victim comes in and is asked to select the offender apart from the other people. It's a diagnosis in, in the exact term of the word. So, the diagnosis of an injury is, for example, if you've torn a ligament in your knee from trauma you sustain that's the diagnosis. Now a prognosis is the knowledge before it comes. Pro means before, gnosis again to recognise or knowledge. So the delivery of the information before it comes, so prognosis medically is what will happen or what's about to happen what's coming. For example you will most likely not be able to run if you've torn a ligament for X amount of time. probably at that time you'll recover to about 95%. That's a prognosis. In verse 2 we see God's prognosis of all that are his. But God's foreknowledge is not like a doctor's where the doctor uses an element of guesswork or estimation based on what's happened before. When we receive a prognosis from God, we can be a hundred percent convinced that he will see it through. And in the moments when we're tempted to lose hope or not be sure, we can remind ourselves that we don't face an uncertain prognosis like that from a doctor, but one that gives an absolute sure hope. So what is this certain prognosis? Here, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, means that it was God's definite prognosis that you would be obedient to follow Christ. That's what it means to be chosen, to have the definite prognosis of the future. That's where our hope comes from. See there, the sprinkling of Christ's blood. That's about our status now as we accept Jesus. That's the mechanism by which we ultimately are accepted by God. Because Jesus' blood shed for us gives us a new relationship with him because God's anger now has been diverted away from us and onto him. The sprinkling of Jesus' blood, just as we we see through the Old Testament as it's put over the lintel of the doorpost, that is the the marked-out way in which God's people are accepted into a new covenant with him. And so, as Jesus spills his blood for us, we have that same assurance that we're safe. How does that come about? Look back there. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's why our purpose statement at Town Church says we are transformed and we are being transformed. In status, we're transformed by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. We've been given a fundamentally new identity. Our chief allegiance is to Jesus. But as the Spirit continues to work in us, We're being transformed. What does that actually mean for us as we're facing tough circumstances in life now? Well, Peter is writing to people calling themselves Christians who need reminding of this. God's ultimate prognosis of those who trust in him is this. Your identity is absolutely firm and secure despite whatever is going on around you in life right now that feels so hard. Your status is 100% nailed on in Jesus because of his work on the cross. Your progress is clear as you continue to be obedient to Christ and the power in which you do that is not your own. It is unfailing. It comes from the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Christians, Peter says, you've got a hope for the future that is absolutely guaranteed and I'm going to tell you about it in the rest of my letter in what it looks like in different circumstances in the ways that you find it most hard. That's what Peter wants to say. As he opens his letter, his headline is this. Remember who you are. You're God's elect. That is your primary identity. You're scattered scattered exiles. Expect to find it hard. Expect to be different among those you're around. Remember whose you are. You belong to the Father whose foreknowledge, whose prognosis about your future is absolute. Because of that, you have a real hope, a significant living hope in the midst of what will be difficult circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much That our fundamental identity, when we follow you, is chosen, transformed, rescued. Father, thank you that that's nothing of what we do, but of what you are like and what you have done for us. Father, please would you help us in circumstances that feel like they're pressing in on us. In circumstances that we in this room are struggling with right now, Would you help us to recognise our primary and fundamental identity? But help us to recognise that you will see this work on to completion. That your prognosis about our future is absolutely nailed on. Father, would that help us to keep going? Give us a living hope in what feels like a hopeless world. Amen.